Well, good evening to you again. If you'll take your Bibles, go with me to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, we're going to look at the last half of chapter 3 and just the opening words of chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for the music. That last song, Show Us Christ, is um, probably one of my if I had to pick one of my top favorite ones, it'd have to be in that list. And I think if any preacher's going to ask for a, a song in the service, that needs to be the, the request made. So thank you for doing that without me even knowing. So appreciate that very much. Show us Christ. Where else can we go but to the one who has the words of eternal, eternal life? Second Timothy chapter 3 and chapter 4. We're going to begin tonight really where we began last week. Our first reference out of the many that I gave you last week came out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 3 and 4. Paul speaks to Timothy and he says, A time will come when the world will not endure sound doctrine, but instead they'll want to have their ears tickled. They'll want to uh, pursue teachers that will teach them what they want to hear about God and about the Word. And, and in verse 4 it says, They will turn away their ears from the truth and says they will turn aside to myths and a falsehood. I figured it'd be appropriate if we just look at the surrounding verses tonight, and, and all the references I'm going to make tonight are just on one page of your Bible, so hopefully that'll help us out. Last week, we began the process of doing something that is a little bit difficult, because last week we started thinking about our thinking about God. And at first, that doesn't seem to be something that's very natural to us, and so to, to help us, we started asking what I called six fundamental questions. And you'll see them on the screen, six fundamental questions. These are questions that we ask all the time, the question of who, what, when, where, why, and how. And last week we looked at really the three of them. We started our study really just about theology and our view of God. And we asked the question, well, what is worship? And we, we tweaked the question later, but what is, what is worship and what is theology? Well, theology is just saying something about God. It's making a truth statement about God. The issue, though, is that making a statement about God does not have to be true. And so we tweaked the question. We said not only what is theology, but what is proper theology? What do we mean about what Scripture teaches? What's the view that a Christian is supposed to have about God? And I gave you a number of references, and the first one came out of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. Proper theology is sound doctrine. It's something that the world rejects, but that the church must embrace. The second question we looked at last week was the question of who. Who is involved in theology? Who is involved in making statements about God? And this is where we saw our first major issue. Because the Bible teaches that everybody has something to say about God. Everyone is a theologian by nature. The issue, though, in Romans 1 that we looked at is that everyone loves in their sin to suppress or reject God's truth. And because of that, we exchange the worship that God deserves for a lie, and our thinking is impacted ever since then. Our sinful nature causes us to have improper thinking about God. So not just who's involved in theology, but we asked last week who must be involved. And we said that true worshipers, people transformed by the gospel, people that have a Christian worldview, people that know the truth and have the spirit of God need to be the voice in this world that have a high view of God and teach the world about God. And then last week we ended with the question of why. And I asked sort of on, on behalf of what you should ask yourself, why should I care 
about theology. Theology gives us answers for many questions in life, why Scripture matters, why the truth is important, why mankind is lost, and it really puts us in our proper place because if there is a God and we ought to worship Him, that should humble us and it should cause us to have such a high view of Him where our worship is appropriate. And so last week we ended with the final question of not just why should I care, but I wanted you to ask yourself maybe why do you at times not care about theology? We should be willing to be humbled in our thinking, especially when that thinking involves God. Now tonight, you'll see the last three questions on the screen. We're going to answer the question of when, where, and how. Now in this study, basically what I'm trying to get you to do is think about what you say that you believe, to reflect on what you say you believe. When we're talking about God and eternal life in Scripture, that should be something incredibly important to us that we take the time to reflect upon it. Now, reflection in this way is sort of unusual to us, but you reflect about many things in life, things that have an impact on your life. I, for the most part, don't really reflect long and hard, lose sleep at night, or drive to and from work thinking about what I'm going to eat later that evening. Most of the time, what is involved in me making dinner at my house is how many dishes is it going to take to make, do I have a gift card to go somewhere, and what do I have in the fridge or the pantry? It's pretty simple as a choice. I'm very different than the lady that you see on the Food Channel known as Ree Drummond, the pioneer woman. That woman is amazing. She takes incredible skills in planning meals and themes to her cooking and all the events that she hosts. I mean, that takes an amazing amount of talent, thought, and reflection. And as good as that is, I'm never going to involve myself that much in regards to food. Not because it's not good, but simply because it's not relevant to me. Now, why do I say that? Well, theology, your view of God, is incredibly relevant to your Christian worldview. It is incredibly relevant to your relationship with him. In fact, one, one scholar put it this way. When we say that we believe in Jesus... Built within that is saying that we believe what Jesus believed. By being a Christ follower, by being literally a Christian, it involves us thinking about the things that Jesus taught. Take the Great Commission, for example. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What's the next part of that? Jesus says, teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So there is this element of learning, of being a student, of willing to be taught something so that then we can go out and teach others. So reflection should be a natural thing for us, especially in our worship and relationship of God. Last week I ended with some words by A.W. Tozer, the great preacher in the last century. And I wanted to start with a quote of his. He once said this, He says, our greatest service to the next generation, our greatest service to the next generation of Christians involves us passing on to them the noble concept of God that is undiminished, that is undimmed. It is the same view that we received from our Hebrew and Christian fathers and scriptures all the generations past. So it's our job within the Great Commission to learn to teach ourselves, and then to go and teach others that noble concept of God that has been passed down consistently for all of these years. Now, as a part of that, I just want you to take for a moment and reflect on what was all involved in you even having this Bible in front of you. 
Great sacrifices have been made so that you have the availability of Scripture anytime you desire. But even more so than that, consider what God has done throughout history to give us his word. He has inspired writers to give us his true word, and it's time for us to make sure that we reflect upon it. Only the Lord knows how much has been involved in bringing us this message of truth, and he's the one that has to give us strength to pass it on to others. But reflection is appropriate. Now, when we look at our passage tonight... We're looking at, probably very familiar to you, some of Paul's very last words. He is entrusting his legacy to Timothy. He is asking Timothy to follow in his footsteps. But as we're going to see, Timothy had to be a student much like we have to be. He had to learn how to be a good student before he could be the proper leader that he was called to be from God. So within this study, I want to give you some practical help involving how you grow in your own theology. How is it that I grow in my knowledge of God? What sort of help can I pursue in getting some answers for that? And that takes us to our first question tonight, and the first question is where? So on the screen, you'll see the first question tonight, and if you have your bulletin from this morning on the back of Bobby's sermon, there is an outline for tonight if you want to use it. The first question of where? This is a question you need to ask yourself. Where should I go to get help in developing my theology. When I say developing, I'm talking about this idea of growing. Where should I go to get help in learning more about God and in learning about how I'm supposed to see God and view God? H.A. Ironside, a great preacher years ago, once said that Paul, even though he was a missionary and an evangelist, his greatest gift was a gift of teaching. Paul, he says, was preeminently, first and foremost, a great teacher. His great gift was teaching because he was able to take the truth that God gave him and then reveal it as a blessing onto other people. And we see this especially in Paul's relationship with the men around him. Paul followed a custom of the day in which he discipled young men, in which he lived life with young men, and he led his teaching by his own example. And it's important to note, too, that this letter that we have in front of us, this letter of 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy as well, and even Titus, these are very personal letters. Paul is writing to his friends, his friends in the ministry. And we don't appreciate letters as much today, but in Paul's day, a letter was like fanning the flame of a great friendship. Uh, one writer put it this way, when Paul writes this letter, he's giving a picture of his own soul to Timothy. And within this letter, we see Paul really addressing a theme we heard about this morning. Paul was aware that the churches in Timothy's day, this second generation of Christian was facing dangers not just from persecution outside, but more dangerously, false teaching on the inside. And so Paul takes up his pen and he writes to Timothy in two letters and Titus in one of them, and he's urging these friends, he's urging his associates and his helpers to stay true to gospel-centered preaching, to sound teaching, to what I called last week that proper theology, that sound doctrine. And as he does so, he also provides examples for what it means to live godly and how that affects our view. Last week, once again, we started with 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul, in this letter, is addressing the threat of false teachers. Now, when you look in chapter 3, verse 1, we're not going to take the time to read these verses, but chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, Paul summarizes the characteristics of false teachers that were within the church. Verse 1 and 2 really give us a good summary. Paul says, but realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come. 
for men will be lovers of self. So if you wanted to boil down the issue in Timothy's day, you had people not having a high view of God, but rather a high view in themselves. And in the next eight or so verses, Paul says this high view of themselves, this exalting themselves above God, this this setting a ceiling on who God is, this improper worship, not only damaged the church, but actually damned them before a holy God in eternity. And Paul says now in verse 10, he says, but you, Timothy, you're different. And he's going to give us a number of reasons as to why Timothy was different than these false teachers. The fundamental reason why Timothy was different was Timothy had the truth and Timothy wanted to grow in the truth. Now, as we start to give some answers to this question This question that I want you to ask yourself, where can I go for help? We're going to start seeing it, not just in chapter 3, verse 10, but really in verse 15. The first answer to this question involving Timothy, where Timothy got help, was where there was provided revelation. So where do we go for help? We go for help in the same place where Timothy got help. We get help where God has revealed himself in what Paul called the sacred scriptures. Just look with me quickly in verse 15. Paul says, Timothy, from childhood you have known the sacred writings, the sacred scriptures. And he says they were able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith that is in Jesus Christ. Paul draws Timothy all the way back to Timothy's childhood. Timothy had the wonderful privilege of having a godly mother and a godly grandmother. They were both Jewish. And the reason why that was important was Timothy had a Jewish upbringing from the motherly uh, maternal figures in his family, even though he was surrounded by a Greek culture and was no doubt probably influenced by a Greek father. Timothy was raised in a knowledge of God's word. He had knowledge of the sacred scriptures from a very young, young age. We're told later in scripture and other places that Timothy was a native of the town of Lystra. And this was very important because this is one of Paul's first destinations in his first missionary journey. You see it in Acts chapter 14. And throughout Paul's ministry, Paul most of the time referred to Timothy as his son in the faith. And the reason why that's important is most scholars would say that Paul was no doubt influential in leading Timothy to Christ and probably within that first missionary journey. Paul was probably instrumental in seeing Timothy come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But you'll notice Paul says, God's work didn't begin in my teaching. He says, God's work really began in the sacred scriptures that you've been raised with all along. So Timothy had to get his view of God first by knowing God's word, by what was provided. And Paul takes delight. He finds joy in saying, Timothy, look back over the last 20, 30 years. God has given you his truth through the sacred scriptures. Next, back in verse 10 and really even in verse 14 that we'll look at, Paul refers to faithful teaching. Timothy could get answers based on faithful teachers in his life. And the most faithful teacher that Timothy had was Paul himself. And the wonderful thing about a faithful teacher, especially with Paul, is Paul had a heart for discipleship, for genuine discipleship. If you look in verse 10, just look at the first phrase. Timothy was raised in the sacred scriptures, but then in verse 10, Paul says, Timothy, you have followed my teaching. And if you jump back to verse 14 real fast, these go together, verse 14. He says, but you, Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned, and notice this, in what you have become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. 
So Paul describes to Timothy, he says, What you have been taught in the scriptures, you have followed in the years of my ministry. Paul was a faithful teacher. When we look there in verse 14, Paul is asking him to continue in what God has given him. Not just in the word, but also in the discipleship that Paul gave Timothy for years and years through his life. One writer put it this way. When, when Timothy says, uh, when, when he's urged rather to continue in what Paul taught, this is really what discipleship is. Timothy was to follow into uh, Paul's example. He was supposed to conform himself to who Paul was, and in so doing, he would conform himself to who Jesus was. And Paul gives a reference of this. He is always talking about discipleship, and he says, you have followed my teaching for years, continue in what you have learned. And then quickly, in verse 10, once again, you followed my teaching. This also gives us a beautiful example of Christian fellowship and obedient living. Obedient living and Christian fellowship. Look in verse 10. You have followed my teaching. That's the first thing. But then he gives a list of eight other things very quickly in verse 10. He says, not just my teaching, but my conduct, my purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Paul gives nine reasons as to what Timothy knew from Paul's life. Timothy, perhaps more than anybody else in Paul's day, maybe other than maybe Luke or Barnabas, people that worked with Paul, Timothy, perhaps more than anybody, knew how much Paul loved the Lord. He had seen it in action. He had seen it in terms of his conduct, his purpose, and his faith. Those three alone testify to Paul's relationship with God. He had a purpose, he, his conduct valued God, and he had great faith in God. Timothy knew of Paul's patience and love. That refers to Paul's relationship with other people. Paul was a great teacher, and every great teacher needs patience and love for the people that they're teaching. And then the last list, you see perseverance, persecutions, and suffering. Timothy knew that Paul cared about the church to the point that he would be willing to suffer if it meant that the early church would grow. Paul even had a desire to see his very captors come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he would often use the hardest of his own circumstances to lead people through the truth of the gospel. So you consider this list, and then in verse 11, he says these persecutions and sufferings, one example, came from these cities. Antioch in verse 11, Iconium, and then Lystra. And Paul says, these persecutions I endured, but out of them the Lord rescued me. Paul here makes a reference all the way back to Acts 13 and 14. In Paul's first missionary journey, he really started experiencing hostility against the gospel. And as he would travel from town to town, there would be growing crowds that would oppose him. And every time that Paul would leave the city out of rejection, he'd go to the next city, but the crowd would oftentimes follow in anger. By the time that Paul arrived at that third destination, the town of Lystra, this was Timothy's hometown. And Timothy saw... No doubt a crowd of people coming and attacking Paul, stoning him and trying to kill him and leave his body outside of the city. So just imagine in young Timothy's mind that model of discipleship in front of his face. Timothy understood what Paul suffered through. But you'll notice in verse 11, Paul's not bragging about himself. He points to Jesus Christ. He says, it's the Lord God that delivered me from these things. And in verse 12, he also says... I will even be ready to suffer more persecution. And in verse 12, he says, all who desire to live godly should be willing to suffer that persecution. Totally opposite from the men that he describes in verse 13. He says, but evil men and imposters 
will proceed from bad to worse by deceiving and then being deceived. The Lord was Paul's rescuer, not just from sin itself, but even in times of persecution. But it's amazing, though, that Timothy got this example all throughout his life. Literally, for probably 20, 30-plus years, Timothy got to live life with Paul. He accompanied him in his ministry. I love how H.A. Uh, Ironside put it. He said, Timothy lived life with Paul. He heard him preach the truth of the gospel But Timothy learned from Paul what he had already gotten directly from God's word. So in other words, this is what I want you to really catch first thing tonight. What I'm saying is this. Timothy learned from Paul what he also saw in God's word. What God taught Timothy through the sacred scriptures, he also saw in the physical life and obedience of Paul. Why do I say that? Because these verses really stress the opportunity for discipleship and the fellowship within the body of Christ here in the church. And when we consider this question, where can I go for help in my theology? You have everything that you already need for help in this room because you have the Word of God and you also have the people of God. As we get to live life with each other, as we get to see the model of obedience in each other's life, Paul is reminding Timothy that's where the gospel is, where we see it not just in the scripture, but we see its life-transforming effects. The the word fellowship that we we oftentimes use is a very particular term. The, The word in Greek is koinonia, and that literally means we have communion with each other. We share a common faith. We share common life experience. We have common teaching. We agree on common truth. But that fellowship involves us coming together, but it really involves us coming together with Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1.9, believers are called in fellowship with Jesus. And in 1 John chapter 1, believers are called in fellowship with each other. So once again, if you want help in growing in the Lord, God has made it available to you right here in this room. All you need to do is be willing to be teachable and willing to teach others based on what God has already done in your life. Now, Baptists are usually known for fellowships, right? And for whatever reason, a lot of people outside of sort of the Baptist church always think that we have food every time we have fellowship. That's just always the joke. But in one sense, we always have food with fellowship. We can definitely have fellowship by eating food on a table, but more times than not, we fellowship by enjoying the meat of God's Word. And we also fellowship by enjoying those sweet desserts of sharing life experiences with each other, of getting opportunities to learn from each other. So just take it as a personal challenge of involving yourself in that next generation of Christ followers. Consider, who around me needs to learn from my example? And that may seem selfish at first, but Paul had a wonderful perspective. Paul urged the early church to follow him as he himself would follow Jesus Christ. So we get help in the body of Christ by what God has already revealed in his word and also through the process of discipleship and fellowship with other believers. You are not alone in your quest and in your challenge to learn about God and to learn about the proper view. When we consider the question of when, question number two tonight, this question you need to ask yourself, we keep talking about theology and it's something that takes really a lifetime of work because it involves us 
learning scripture that God's already given and involves us brushing with our, our shoulders against people that have been changed by the gospel. So you might ask the question of, well, when is this really going to change my life? When can I see results from developing my theology, from learning about the Lord, from getting a proper view of the Lord? Well, in this next section, beginning in verse 16, we get to discuss the magnitude of the Word of God itself. Now, please understand that when we look in at verse 16, we're just going to brush by it very quickly, but there's so much packed into this verse. Uh, if I had a whole other hour, I would have loved to slow down and look at it, but the issue is, an hour from now, uh, my wife and daughter would be the only person still left in the room, and the only reason they would stay is because I've got the keys in my pocket. Okay, so I'm not going to keep this here very long. But in verse 16, I just want you to consider what Paul says about you and me responding to the Word of God. So if you want to ask the question of when can I expect results, you can expect results when you see yourself in a variety of ways, when you see yourself in relationship to God's Word. So let me give you some examples of that. First of all, if you want to see results in developing a view of God, you need to first be amazed at what Scripture is. When can I expect results? When I'm first amazed at what Scripture is. Look in verse 16. Paul says, All Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture is inspired by God. I'm going to say it again until I get a response. All Scripture is inspired by God. There you go. All Scripture, it's inspired of God. Be first amazed that we have the words of God. That, that comes first. We have to see ourselves first amazed at what Scripture is. It is inspired. It is literally, in the Greek, the God-breathed the words of God. It's like God has exhaled His words. God has made it abundantly clear what He wants us to know. The same power that was involved in speaking the world into existence is sort of the picture that Paul uses to describe him giving us his word. And it's a privilege that we have it. But we have to be first amazed at what Scripture is. It is the powerful words of life that God gave men to write down through the power of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they might have dictated exactly what God said, but more times than not, the Holy Spirit led them in such a way that they wrote in their own personality, and yet they wrote the very words of God. It's inspired by God. Next, if you want to see results, you have to be motivated. See yourself as motivated by what Scripture promises. And, and you probably know this verse. All Scripture is inspired by God, and then Paul says it's profitable. There are a lot of things in this world that promise profit. There are a lot of things that people say, if you do this, you'll make a lot of money. Here's the only issue. They can never give a guarantee to that statement, but God can. God says, I guarantee to you that it is profitable for you to get in my word. If this is the very word of God itself, then it is always a guaranteed profit for the Christian to be motivated to understand it. God does and he can give us a guarantee. If you truly want to learn more about God, then you have to go through his prescribed method. And that is learning about scripture and soaking up as much as you can and using those around you in discipleship and fellowship to challenge you to learn more. Next, you need to see yourself and I need to see myself cooperating with what it finds. Cooperating with what it finds. Paul says all scripture is inspired of God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, 
and for training in righteousness. And you get the idea, but those middle two for reproof and for correction. Bible study should not always be what you get on Caleb. Caleb is always positive and encouraging, right? Well, Bible study is not always that way. Bible study oftentimes involves rebuke. Bible study oftentimes revolves God confronting us in our sin and making us refine our thoughts of him and the truth that we need to embrace. So we have to be cooperative with what Scripture finds about us. We heard the reference to Hebrews 4 this morning where the Word of God lays everything out before God and God sees it all. Everything is open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So you got that old preacher quote, whenever you read the Bible, the Bible itself is reading you. So we have to cooperate with what it finds. Scripture is the only book that when you read it, it's truly reading you. And we have to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit says about us. Next, when it talks about training, we need to see ourselves next underneath what Scripture teaches. If we are underneath God himself, then it follows that we should be underneath the very word of God. Having a high view of God should always lead into having a very high view of Scripture. Any student should be an authority to the teacher. And the really good student knows that up front before the teacher has to prove it out of some kind of discipline. But if a student is under the authority of the teacher, how much more so are you under the authority of the Word of God? And you have to see yourself, I am underneath what Scripture teaches, because it involves training. It involves teaching, reproving me, and for correcting me. But all of this leads us to the next thing, the last part of verse 16 and 17. You need to see yourself next in need, in need of what Scripture promises to give, in need of what Scripture gives. He says it is inspired of God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, for training in righteousness, So that the man of God is adequate and equipped for every good work. Scripture provides the training that we need in righteousness. So you'll notice Scripture is not the source of our righteousness. That righteousness is Christ. But Scripture involves training us in the righteousness that we receive. The word training refers to discipline. And we get the idea of of discipline and it involves being trained. It involves training a person in the way that they ought to go. In Scripture, though, when it discusses training, it really refers to training a child, instructing the child, modeling that behavior at an early stage. Now, the only other time that this word training, the, the original word is used in the New Testament, is in Hebrews chapter 12. And we don't have time to look at it, but in Hebrews chapter 12, right in the middle of it, you have that long discussion about how God disciplines his own children just like any good father would do to his own son. And in that, the writer of Hebrews quotes Proverbs chapter 3. But you'll notice, Scripture gives us the training that we need. It says that we would be made adequate, we would be made equipped. The idea is that you are now thoroughly furnished. You are ready for use through your study of God's Word. Just imagine it this way. You could spend all the money that you have or will ever learn in buying the greatest dream house that you could possibly imagine. I mean, just imagine this mansion that you might see on TV and you know what, if you had a way of purchasing it, awesome. Let's say, let's say you bought it, you close the deal on the house, and you go to live in that house. I promise you, you would probably not live in that house more than one evening if you don't equip that house with what you need from day to day. 
And the Bible says here in, in verse 17 that unless you want to be ready for use of God, you have to go through God's word. It is necessary. Scripture gives us the training that we need, and God says that we have to approach him in that way. It is the way that we are useful. Now, very quickly, if you look in chapter 4, I want to tie these verses together. The last thing that Paul reminds Timothy of in relation to Scripture is he reminds Timothy of the person to whom Scripture points. So this last one, quickly, you need to see yourself accountable to whom Scripture points. And Scripture always points to Jesus Christ. Look in verse 1, chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and with great instruction. One writer put it this way, when Paul refers to the presence of God and the presence of Jesus Christ, Paul is bringing weight to his words. And he is leaving Timothy at the very throne of God. He is giving Timothy his final words before he departs from this world. When we get to verse 6 and on down, verse 6 really to verse 8 are Paul's real last words of teaching that we see in the Bible. And in verse 9 and on forward, it's his final instructions about what Timothy needs to do and things that Paul desires to do. But once we get to verse 6, it's about to be over for Paul. And he recognizes that he is not at all convinced that he's going to make it past this. He is aware that he is about to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. But he brings Timothy to the throne room. And the writer said that this overwhelming sense of God's presence was to motivate Timothy to service. And when you look in verse 2, Paul says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Essentially, Paul says, Timothy, you be faithful to God's word, whether it is convenient to you or whether it's not convenient. You be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever the circumstances and whatever the cost. And you'll notice the end of verse 2, involved in Timothy's preaching ministry, he was to reprove, rebuke, and exhort the very same things that the scripture would do to Timothy back in chapter 3. So the more Timothy got in his word, the more willing and able and useful he would be in his ministry. If Timothy was going to fulfill that final assignment from Paul, this task of God, he had to do it by God's word. So when we're thinking about this question, when can I expect results? You can expect results when you see yourself in terms of all of those things amazed. That scripture is the very word of God, motivated, where we cooperate with it, where we're underneath it, where we're in need of it, and then finally where we're truly accountable to the author of scripture himself. And Paul reminds Timothy of the future reign of Jesus Christ. And because of that, Timothy was to be greatly motivated. You see, this is where I hope you see the connection between theology, this thinking about God, and the connection with that in scripture. One writer said that studying theology isn't just something you do in a classroom. And it, it, but it might be. It's not just an academic exercise, though. He says it's something that should change you, convict you, broaden your mind, challenge you, but it will ultimately lead you into reverence for God. And that's exactly Paul's approach to Timothy. Worship means that we recognize the worthiness of something. So the, the author gave us this question. He says, how could any person put his mind to study God in Scripture and not leave at the end of the day humbled by God's worth, recognizing God's worth. If you want to expect results in your Christian life, you have to do so based on your view of Scripture and your response to it.
quickly, let's try to close this up with the word how. How will my life be changed? Once again, we looked at verses 3 and 4 last week, so jump with me. Last verse, verse 5. Paul says, Timothy, you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Paul is giving these final tests to Timothy, but really what Paul's doing is he's really saying what every Christian will become, what you and I will be when we get our view of God right. So how does he describe you and how does he describe what I will be? Well, he says first we'll be sober in the truth. When we get our view of God right, when we get our view of Scripture right, Paul says you'll be sober. You will be vigilant. You will be alert against the enemy. Paul and Timothy face great enemies. They faced an evil world, they faced sinful flesh, they faced the work of Satan himself, and those are the same enemies that we face in our Christian life. But knowing the truth and growing in the truth gives us a great defense. Next, he says, Timothy, endure hardship. So he gives us this idea of being steady against hardship. And I want to wrap up these last three quickly. He also says that we would be sincere in our witness. He says, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And then finally, he describes how we'll be strong in our calling. Strong in your calling, strong in my calling. And you'll notice his last words in verse 5. He says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. The last two Wednesday nights, Bobby was um, showing a video to the youth. And the video was called The Insanity of God. And in that video, you see this missionary couple, Nick and Ruth Ripkin. And they found themselves throughout their ministry connected to the persecuted church. And I would recommend this video to you, The Insanity of God. If there's any way for you to find it, you can download it online. You can, uh, I'm sure, rent it from Bobby. You can buy a DVD for it at different bookstores. I'd encourage you to watch it because, my goodness, it just nails you right in the heart when it comes to fulfilling God's role in your life. But the main question that that the ministry couple struggled with was this all throughout the movie. Is Jesus worth it? And this really brings us full circle to what this whole study is about. When it involves our Christian living, the question of is Jesus worth it is really the ultimate question that we ask. Is Jesus worth it? Well, that involves your view of God. He made a few quotes that I want to begin to close with quickly involving ministry. He says, first of all, talking about the persecuted church... He says, we as Americans give up in freedom what they never give up in persecution. And the question is, what was he talking about? What is it that we of the church in America give up even though suffering Christians don't? And he said it was evangelism. Whenever we refuse to tell people the message and the gospel and the truth of Jesus Christ, the suffering Christians overseas would say that identifies with the enemy and not the persecuted church. And I would think Paul would agree with that statement because he tells Timothy, he says, you do the work, you fulfill your ministry, but be willing to endure hardship, knowing back in 3 verse 12 that if you want to live godly, it will always involve suffering for the name of Jesus Christ. So you need to ask yourself as we sort of end our conversation tonight, is Jesus worth it? And once again, that involves your view of God. And as we close, I just want to leave you with maybe four quick questions to ask yourself that might sort of go with that question, is Jesus worth it? And you'll see these on the next screen just super fast. Ask yourself, how far can I go in studying theology? And the answer to that, you can go as far as you want to. My former pastor used to put it this way. He says, you have as much of God as you want to have. Infinity is the limit. Wrap your brain around this just real fast. You can, and in one sense we will, spend eternity 
learning more and more and more about God. And yet even after all of that, even in all of that, we will still never fully comprehend who he is. That's humbling. You could even say it this way. You could spend the rest of your life today and for all eternity learning about God, but in one sense you would never be closer then than you would be the day you even started. That's how awesome that our Lord is. So how far do you want to go? It's as far as you want to go. But the question is, do you have a, do you have a desire to have a high view of God, to involve yourself in learning more? Next question quickly. Ask yourself the question of how. How much might it cost me to do so? In one sense, it's always going to involve time and effort. If you truly want to learn more about God, it's always going to involve time, and it's always going to involve your focus and attention. You have to be willing to give that up. For some of you, that might mean some money, where you invest in material to help you grow in your Bible study. For some of you, it might mean in the future taking classes where you want to have a formal education. But I would say definitely for all of us, suffering is going to be involved. It might even involve persecution, not so much what we maybe see overseas. We can't even begin to appreciate that, but it will definitely involve suffering if we really want to follow God. But before you think about that question, how much might it cost me, think about what John MacArthur said in this quote. He said, self-centered Christians that only serve God with half their heart, they seldom have to pay a price for their faith. They're of little threat to Satan's work because they're of little benefits to Jesus' work. So it involves all of your attention. Last two very quickly. How many don't know what I do know? You should ask yourself that question definitely in terms of the people here in this room. How many people don't know what I do know? Who can I invest and live life with and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ? And you definitely didn't ask that question in terms of evangelism. How many people don't know the truth of the gospel that I know and experience in my everyday life? The last question, how often do I consider my ministry? Paul said, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Timothy was aware of a calling in his life to serve God in a particular purpose. And the question that you need to ask yourself as we leave is, how often do I consider what God is maybe calling me to in my life? One last quote. Timothy was to give his own soul, all his strength, all his mind, all his talents, all his heart, all his life to the great work that God called him. And even though Paul's words were directed to Timothy some 2,000 years ago, they have been preserved by God's Spirit so that they would come home in our hearts today and that we would ask them of ourselves in the same way Paul asked Timothy those times. I've kept you long enough tonight. If you would stand with me, I want to close this out in a word of prayer. I thank you so much for being here. If nothing else in this study, in this idea of thinking about our thinking, if nothing else happens of this other than you being humbled by the awesomeness of God, that's mission accomplished. Maybe, though, number two, hopefully this might spark some conversations just within our church body of how there might be different ways where we can impact each other, where we might strengthen and sharpen each other in the work of ministry, and definitely how we can disciple and fellowship with one another through the Word and through life experience. So I want to leave you with those thoughts, and let me pray us out. Heavenly Father, thank you for the faithful ones that have come here tonight to hear your word. And I pray that out of all of what we looked at tonight, that first and foremost, you've shown us Christ and that he would be glorified. I do ask that you would impress through the power of your Holy Spirit the message of Paul's final words where we are to endure hardship, fulfill our ministry, and do the work of evangelism by being sober in all things. We thank you for your glorious word and help us to be willing to be students of it. Help us to be teachable 
where we can also later teach others. Help us to fulfill the Great Commission, but also being ready to learn and pay the price, even if it involves our consequences and even if it involves suffering. We thank you for the wonderful relationship that Paul had with Timothy, for him investing his life, for Timothy following that wonderful godly legacy. And I pray that you would raise up men and women here in this congregation to inspire and impact the next generation of Christians and just help them and run alongside them and help them finish their race in such a way that you would be glorified and that many lives would be changed. Thank you once again for tonight. We ask that you help us rest and give us a good week. We ask that you be with our teachers and our students as they return back to school shortly, but help all of us be students and teachers of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.